This evening I'd like to give a talk that probably most people don't like to hear. I'd like to talk about the body. It's probably clear to us that our sense of who we are, our sense of self, in any moment of our lives, rests in and relies upon whatever we grasp hold of, whatever we cling to in that moment. We define and we describe ourselves by our bodies, by our thoughts, our feelings, our perceptions, our states of mind. Many of these descriptions and definitions we have about who we are are somewhat fleeting and ephemeral. They're kind of like clouds that appear in the sky and they last for a time and then they're forgotten. Or else some of those descriptions may simply be replaced by another more pressing or convincing definition. The I who is angry is forgotten in the presence of happiness. The I who is discontented is erased by the appearance of elation. The I who is calm is only a distant memory to the I who is agitated. Perhaps the most central and constant word in our vocabulary is I. And perhaps one of the most constant resting places of this sense of I or this sense of self is in our body. We're born in our body, we spend our lives in our body, we die in our bodies. Our bodies can feel like an ally, and they can also feel to betray us. Our bodies can delight us, and they also torment us. We can suffer in our bodies, and also some of the moments of deepest connection and intimacy are found in the world of our bodies. Our bodies link us all to each other. And our bodies link us to nature, to every single thing that is born. Walt Whitman once said that everything we do, everything we have done, and everything we will do, we will do in our bodies. If we are to awaken to find liberation, it too will be discovered while in this body the compassion, the loving kindness, the care, the sensitivity we discover on our journey is going to be expressed and given life through this body. It's perhaps no surprise then that the first foundation of mindfulness is the contemplation of our body. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha encourages to contemplate the body as a body. To contemplate the body of the breath, to contemplate our bodies internally and externally, to contemplate our bodies in all their postures and movements through the day. There's the encouragement in the sutta to encourage, uh, to contemplate the smallest details of our body, our inner world of organs and bones and blood. We are also too encouraged to contemplate the death of our body and the death of all bodies around us. 
I had to tell you a story which you might find a little weird. I went to a monastery to practice, and I was shown to my kuti, to my hut, and it was a very simple hut. And I opened the door, and there wasn't really anything in there, a little kind of straw mat to sleep on. And one other thing, the top part of a skull. And I felt probably like you would feel if you went in your room here your first night and you found there was nothing in there but the top part of a skull. You know, you'd probably feel a little, you know. And at first I realized I had this real aversion to this skull. You know, I really did not want it in my hat. Um, And yet I felt, you know, kind of like a bit, you know, what was I going to do with it? You know, I mean... It wasn't like I could sort of hide it under the building or something or go give it back or something. So I realized I had to live with this this top part of a skull. And it was kind of interesting over the days how my relationship did change. You know, at first I would sit pretending it wasn't there. (laughs) And I would really just not want to see it, you know. But actually, the last thing I saw at night was the skull. And the first thing I saw in the morning was the skull. You know, I'd wake up, these eyes would be looking at me. And after a while, I started really to find this kind of very kind of strange affection for the skull. And I started contemplating it. And I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to contemplate a skull. But, like, it's really a miracle. I mean, the the wondrous colors and the bone and the smooth... I mean, I didn't have anything else to do, right? You know, know, no books, no TV. There was nothing else to do. But the smoothness and, and the kind of this perfection of this skull... And this marbling, you know, I really got into this skull. And it started to kind of sink in a little, you know, like that too was a person alive, vital with their hopes, their fears, their aspirations, you know, just like all of us. You know, and then I thought, well, underneath this bit, there's one of those, And it's going to end up like one of those. And maybe one day somebody will contemplate my skull. And I thought, well, how wonderful if they got as much joy out of my skull as I'm getting out of this skull. You know, this is probably yogi mind, but it did lead to a sort of contemplation of birth and death death all around us, and and to sense that this body, too, really only has one destination, and that is to die. And I can say that, and I don't feel it's grim. I don't feel it's fearful. I don't feel it's a depressing thing to say. I hope you don't hear it that way. It can also be a great freedom. The line that is constantly repeated in the Satipatthana Sutta is to contemplate the body as body and to abide free 
not clinging to anything in this world. The Buddha also went on to say that everything that there is to be understood can be understood within the length of this body. The lessons of impermanence, of suffering and its cause, and also the end of suffering, the lessons of emptiness, we learn within the world of this body. The lessons of acceptance and care and compassion are learned within our bodies. Within our bodies, we learn to appreciate the, the paradoxical lessons or apparently paradoxical lessons of how to live with a, a fullness of care and compassion and acceptance without holding on to anything at all. Within our bodies, we learn the lessons of freedom. The first great leap that we make in mindfulness practice is to bring attention, to bring our mind into our bodies, to explore the life of our bodies. All the stories and fears and resistances and images that attach themselves to this body Here we see that our body is really an ally in developing understanding. The anxiety and discontent, the confusion and struggle and judgment that arises in relationship to our bodies is the same anxiety and struggle and discontent and confusion that will and can arise in countless other areas of our lives. The patterns of abandonment that sometimes manifest in our relationship to our bodies, are the same patterns of abandonment that manifest elsewhere. Our body is a mirror for our mind and our world. We can also learn to find calmness and understanding and compassion in the world of our bodies and learn to embody those qualities in all the moments of our lives. We learn to let go in our bodies. Even as we bring the deepest sensitivity, they are lessons that transform our lives. I think in the world of our bodies, we learn to weave together the relative and absolute truths. Caring for the world of form Embracing our bodies with a bottomless integrity and compassion, embodying a profound sensitivity and loving kindness, yet not mistaking our bodies for the truth of who we are. Not mistaking the appearance of anyone or anything for the truth of who they are. We are often disembodied. Our bodies are sometimes just treated like a backdrop for our mind's busyness. It seems like there's two positions that are often inhabited in relationship to our bodies. One is a position of neglect, where our body is treated as a nuisance, even as an enemy, something to ignore as much as possible, the source of distraction or the source of discontent. And there's really different extremes within this position of neglect. We might treat our bodies as an object to which we extend minimal care, 
I read recently a line that says, many people treat their bodies as if they're rented from hurts. Something they use to get around in, but nothing they genuinely care about understanding. There's also a kind of extreme in this position of neglect, too, where the body, our body, is treated with aversion and hatred. The opposite to neglect is obsession with our bodies, where our mirrors and our scales and our self-evaluations and judgments and comparisons are our daily companions. We can deeply sense how our sense of self is deeply embedded in our bodies, in their health, their appearance, their attractiveness, their non-attractiveness, their safety. And when our sense of self is embedded in our bodies in this way, then the world of our bodies becomes a minefield of anxiety and preoccupation and busyness. Sometimes, strangely, there can be a mixture of these two positions of neglect and obsession. We can neglect our bodies even as we despise them. Young girls spending their lives obsessing about their bodies, bulimic, anorexic, self-harming, obsessed with clothes, appearance, obsessing about the body simultaneously, abusing them. These extreme positions, I think, are also reflected in the spiritual world. There seems to be a universality about the confusion, around confusion about the body. There's a few statements I came across recently. You know, please just kind of let them move through you. (laughs) If anything is sacred, the human body is sacred. Our body is a thing of shreds and patches, borrowed unequally from good and bad ancestors and a misfit from the start. I have visited in my wandering shrines and other places of pilgrimage, but I have not seen another shrine like my own body. Look at your body, ill, rotten. (laughs) Focus your mind on all of this. Only a fool would love it. We could read, you know, I mean, I could go on endlessly, you know. It's, it, and sometimes it's hard to find the clarity and the equanimity in some of these positions that seem so extreme, and yet we see mirrored in some of these extremes some of the confusion that can live in our own relationship to our bodies, the infatuation and the aversion. Our sense of self is often governed by our relationship to our bodies. We can be ashamed of them. We can be proud of them. We can be depressed about them. We can be exhilarated by them. When I was a young teenager, I'm sure many of you share this experience, I had an ongoing preoccupation with my body. You know, makeup, clothes, appearances... Even as I grew a little older and became a hippie, I really needed to be a well-dressed hippie. (laughs) My body was unconsciously a means to love and affirmation, to praise and admiration. Consumed such a lot of time and energy. 
to have an attractive body, strong, appealing. It was, you know, in my equation, the same as having an attractive self. When I went to Asia, spent some time in Thailand, faced a different kind of philosophy, certainly about my body, which certainly was, and I have to say this, it wasn't shared by all monks, but where my body was actually seen as something impure and to be reviled, something to be left behind. You know, I was in situations where monks would plaster themselves against walls just to avoid the vague possibility of touching my body. And I felt really insulted. I really felt insulted. But actually, the way I felt insulted was absolutely no different from the way I insulted myself whenever when I used to look in the mirror. It seemed in that context that not only was my body a personal uh, obstruction to liberation, but it was also blamed for being the possible downfall of other people's liberation. (laughs) seemed a really bad deal. (laughs) The Buddha in his own journey initially treated his body as an obstruction, an obstacle, something to transcend. Like many women today, in his path, he starved and abused his body, trying to subdue it and to overcome it, to have control over it. In his ascetic years, he spent many months punishing embodies, engaging in years of disembodied activity and misperceiving that deluded activity as renunciation. In fact, the Buddha pursued a path of destruction rather than enlightenment until that turning point came on his journey when he sat down by a river so starved and emaciated and and weak and someone, a young woman, came along and offered him something to eat. And it was a moment of awakening. It was a turning point in his journey of learning to embody, to respect his body, to care for it, to no longer have that attitude of it being a problem, an obstacle, something to overcome. And it was a turning point in his journey. In fact, throughout the rest of the Buddha's life, there was this manifestation of this strong relationship, respectful relationship to all form. One of the most touching pieces, I often think, in the Buddhist story is when asked, you know, what his authority was to teach was simply to reach over and to touch the ground and to say that the earth was his witness of, of worthiness, of being, of wisdom. We see so ourselves how much of our self-worth is rooted in identifying with the world of our body if you've ever had that experience of just catching a glimpse of yourself in the mirror or in a window and it coming as a kind of shock, you didn't say, who's that person? (laughs) Recently, I was in a a store, and it it was a store where it had these these kind of mirrored partitions, and I walked into myself. totally didn't recognize that person in the mirror. He said, I was just, well, you know, walking around, wondering why this person didn't move aside. I just walked flat into the mirror. 
I thought, hey, that's me. Imagine. You know that universal resistance to looking at photos of yourself? How many times we look at photos of ourselves and the immediate response is, oh, that's a terrible photo. That doesn't look like me. It's interesting exercise to see what happens in your mind and emotionally if you spend a little time just looking at yourself in the mirror. You know, just not doing anything, just looking at yourself. Is it a neutral relationship? Or is it charged with evaluation and judgment? You know, it has my hair, my lines, my color, my appearance... You know, I once saw a cartoon of the Buddha, you know, where he's kind of talking to somebody, and he says, I hate my thighs. (laughs) (laughs) When our sense of Self-worth is invested in the body. So too is our level of sorrow and suffering. And it increases day by day. And this level of investment of self in the body is not just personal. Our bodies have become economic and social and political issues. It's not difficult for us to explore confusion in our body. And in our practice, we are invited to explore the possibilities of clarity. The places of greatest confusion in our lives are also the places that offer us the possibility of greatest insight. The places where we're most contracted and imprisoned are the places where we may discover the greatest liberation and compassion. In our bodies, we explore the body of our breath. We learn the lessons of simplicity and letting go. We feel the body of the breath. We are not the breather. We can try to be. And whenever we try to be the breather, you notice you get into trouble. Whenever you try to be the breather, the breath immediately becomes a place of anxiety of judgment, of contraction, of right and wrong and good and bad, with all the anxiety and frustration and orulation that can attach themselves to being the breather. Then we discover in our practice that the breath can breathe itself, and we learn to be awake to the body of the breath, exploring our capacity for sensitivity and oneness. Within our willingness and capacity to be present within the body of our breath, we also see the emptiness of the breather. Our presence, alert and sensitive within the breath, also opens the door to exploring and understanding the whole of our experience moment to moment. We sense, too, the body of emotion within our bodies, the body of anger, of grief, of fear, of anxiety, of sadness, the body of resentment, of happiness, of love. 
we learn to sense and to explore the body of emotion, to be intimate with that body. At times we see the way different emotional bodies have become embedded in our physical bodies, how we hold ourselves, how we place ourselves in a room, our postures, the places where we contract, the places where we're tight. Sometimes we see that past experience of pain, of fear, lock themselves into our physical bodies. We also see in our emotional bodies how the sense of I latches on to those emotional bodies. And in latching on to the emotions, that sense of I, we become defined and often a prisoner of the emotions. I am sad. I am angry. I am grieving. It is no different than I am beautiful or I am not beautiful. I am sick. I am well. With the latching on to the emotional, with the sense of self latching on to the emotional body, we also set in motion the world of craving and aversion, what we want to get rid of, what we want to fix, what we want more of, what we want less of. The sorrow and struggle is not in the emotions, just as it is not in our bodies. The sorrow and the struggle is in the holding. And we learn we can, in truth, dive beneath the clinging. At times we can release the holding. We can release the clinging. And then we are not emotionally imprisoned. Then we are emotionally awake. It's just sadness. It is just fear. It is just grief. It is just anger. It's not my enemy. And it's not who I am. Because of that release, we are free to care for, to attend, to embrace our emotional bodies, to sense the way that these different emotional bodies arise and pass, to appear and fade away. It is when we are so identified and so holding in the emotional body, that is when we are shattered by emotion. When we learn to listen, and to receive our emotional bodies fully without grasping, when we learn to take the I out, then we're not lost and we're not defined. But we are embodied. We are steady and balanced. We see the causes of suffering and the causes of freedom. And mindfulness is not a device to create emotional barrenness but to find the same freedom and wakefulness in emotion that we can find anywhere. (coughs) We see the body of our mind, the body of our thoughts in our bodies. We sense how our body is when the mind is agitated or anxious or dull or heavy or fearful. We see that in our body. We see that the times when we're most lost in in habit, in turmoil, in storms of thinking, those are the times also when we are most disembodied. By learning to come back to be embodied, we are also learning to open and to release the storms. On a more subtle level of attention, 
we begin to see even the arising thought impact on our bodies. With mindfulness, we learn to integrate the mind and body in present moment. That's when we're truly embodied. We learn to sense the moments of division when our minds and bodies separate. And we learn we can come back and we can heal the fracture. We can heal the disembodiment. In our bodies, we learn the lessons of impermanence and how to find grace in the world of change. Impermanence is really bad news when our sense of self is identified with our bodies. Sometimes in times of illness or in times of frailty, we can sense how strongly that sense of I and sense of self appears. And with the appearance of that sense of I and self taking hold of illness or frailty, we enter into the world of loss and despair and resistance, even blame. In our changing bodies, we see the rhythm of nature, spring, autumn, birth, death, to try to swim against that current of change is to suffer, to only welcome beginnings in our lives and to try and prevent endings, is to invite a sea of sorrow into our lives. A friend, an old yogi, practiced many years in, uh, with us in California who, who died a few months ago, and she had Lou Gehrig's disease. And I learned a great deal from her because over the years as her illness developed, every year she would come on the retreat and, and her body was disappearing on her. You know, first she wouldn't feel her feet or her hands. You know, then, you know, something else would disappear. And every time she would come and she would say, you know, she would say, you always told me to be mindful when I walk. Now I'm really learning what it means to be mindful when I walk. Otherwise I fall over. She said, you always told me to be mindful when I'm eating. She said, now I'm so mindful when I'm eating. Every, every mouthful is a journey in itself. She said, you told me to be mindful when I'm breathing. She said, and now every breath is something that is a gift. And she said, when she was really near the end, she came to visit the last time I taught a retreat there. She came to visit, and she was in a wheelchair, and her breathing was often assisted, and she hardly had any, any voice left. She could hardly speak anymore. But she said, you know, I'm so well. She said, I'm so well. She said, you know, the doctors, she said, I had a checkup last week. She says, my heart's great. My liver's doing fantastic. My spleen's terrific. My kidneys are functioning really well. She said, I'm so well. She died in the interval in listening to a Dharma talk. Isn't that amazing? You know, that she went, she was in the Dharma talk. It was a break. She went out in the parking lot and died. It was so amazing, but she was so well. Wisdom is what saves us from sorrow and from struggle. 
Our grace and peace come with our capacity to be with our bodies and to be with life as they are now and not how we think they should be or how we want them to be. The more investment we have in how we think they should be or want them to be is the degree of pain and struggle we will find. I want to read you a few verses from a very long poem, and and I hope you again will take this in good spirit. These verses come from one of the early Buddhist nuns, and they are a response to a very ardent admirer of hers, you know, who at first kind of, you know, given her this poem that enthused about her beauty and all her physical attributes, you know, and her... You know, her teeth like a flock of shorn ewes, and, you know, her lips are like a scarlet thread, you know, and her cheeks are halves of a pomegranate, you know, like this guy who's getting carried away, right? So, Ambapali, one of the early Buddhist nuns, and I'll just read you a few verses because it's very long, although I could add quite a few of my own, I've got to tell you. She says, my hair was black and curly, the color of black bees. Now that I'm old, it's like the hemp of trees. This is the teaching of one who speaks the truth. She says, my eyes flashed like jewels, long black. Now they don't make anyone look back. This is the teaching of one who speaks the truth. My earlobes were beautiful as bracelets, highly crafted and bright. Now they sag and have wrinkles all right. This is the teaching of one who speaks the truth. She said, I had a sweet voice like a cuckoo moving in a thicket, now cracked and halting. You can hear my age in it. This is the teaching of one who speaks the truth. My hands were beautiful, set off by rings, gold as the sun. Now because of old age, they're radishes or onions. This is the teaching of one who speaks the truth. My thighs were beautiful, like an elephant's trunk. Now, because of old age, they're like bamboo stalks. This is the teaching of one who speaks the truth. Now these same calves are like sticks of sesame. This is the teaching of one who speaks the truth. This is how my body was. Now it is dilapidated, the place of pain, an old house with the plaster falling off. A dilapidated house with the plaster falling off. We could see this as a poem of aversion. (laughs) It could also just be a recognition of what changes in the life of our body without aversion and craving. Sometimes it's just what is. Sometimes it's just what is. And making peace with what is, is really making peace with all things. It's really where we let go of fear. In our bodies, we learn the lessons of compassion and kindness, not just once, but again and again. Every moment of pain and struggle, whether it's physical, emotional, psychological, these are also moments of possibilities. We can be lost in clinging and identification. Then we have to see that is also to be lost in the world of fear and anxiety and resistance. 
where we can learn to soften and open, to care for our bodies, to listen deeply, fully. We are shattered by change only when we demand permanence in the world. Pain frightens us only as long as we're lost in the track of disassociating from it. Just as we can suffer in our bodies, we can also be awake in our bodies. To probe our own relationship to our bodies is sometimes to probe the meaning of imprisonment and freedom. In deeper states of meditation, the sense of our body consciously, uh, the sense of our body consciousness radically alters. We can experience the disappearing body. It's not unusual. No arms, no legs, no head. It's not being disembodied, but it's a kind of falling away of solidity when no sense of self is found anywhere in our bodies. And it radically alters our sense of who we are, of what I am, of how our body is. But this understanding can also be found in times of your chronic pain and illness. Those are the times in chronic pain and illness when our body consciousness has a huge presence. And this can be a place where holding and resistance also disappears. A woman living with the constant pain of rheumatoid arthritis wrote, The only way I know to alleviate suffering is to be intimate with it. In mindfulness practice, We sense our body also as a body of a Buddha, letting go of holding, seeing the emptiness of many of our descriptions, ending the suffering of those descriptions, being awake and mindful in our bodies and yet not holding on to anything. Just as we see self-consciousness so strongly in our bodies, we can also see the wisdom and the liberation of emptiness in our bodies. And learning to be awake in our our bodies, learning the lessons of compassion in our bodies, we really learn to be awake in this world of so many bodies and forms, abiding mindful and not holding on to anything, contemplating fully, and not holding on anywhere. I'd like to read a small poem, which I think is a good poem for practice. It says, My body, you are kind to sit and wait for me while I'm away. I wander off, but you don't budge. When I return home, it is to you. Yeah, just a couple of moments, quietly. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.